people have a whole culture of attitudes towards money. And these cultures come from their own family and upbringing, and they're not necessarily the same. Some people might want to have income or make money because it makes them feel safe and secure. No, and others be like, oh, it's about prestige and power. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F Word podcast. I am excited for you to hear this week's episode with Dr. Johanna Peets. We talk about how to make sense of time, personal spending, and relationships in a money context. Her research is fascinating as it really stems on these three concepts of time, personal spending, and relationships. Before we get into the episode, if you are enjoying these fantastic conversations, I say fantastic because the guests are just so fantastic, at least in my perspective. But if you've been enjoying these conversations, please, can you do me a favor and head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review? The reviews definitely help bring wonderful guests like Dr. Pete's. So who is Dr. Peets? Well, she's an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. Dr. Peets completed her undergrad in her native country, Germany, in the city of Berlin. And her research, as I said earlier, focuses on topics that are connected to goal-directed decision-making across all different domains of personal finance spending, time, and our interpersonal relationships. I speak from experience, understanding how to use money and our decisions in relationships. It's pretty darn important. Her research has been published in tons of different journals and has really gotten a lot of attention from people who want to understand how we can make better financial decisions for ourselves now and in the future. That is what Johanna Pietz's goal is all about, is how can we identify ways to line up our actions with desired outcomes and provide people with this information so that we can make better financial decisions for ourselves. During this conversation, we talk about ways that we can save more money for our future self, something that tends to be rather difficult. She even talks about why we are bad at recognizing our future selves. And I found it really interesting when we talked about the difference between goal setting and goal pursuit and why they're both important. Johanna also gives some really realistic examples of how to set goals that are intrinsically created so that we can be motivated internally to achieve these goals rather than relying on fleeting at best external motivation. Johanna also dives into the difference between conscientious money behaviors versus mindful money behaviors and how we may benefit from cultivating a sense of conscientious money behaviors. She also talks about a fantastic study that her and her colleagues did on how when people come up with their own saving strategies, they tend to be more effective than the professionals. We talk about so much more in this fabulous conversation with Dr. Johanna Peets. I want to say a quick thank you to Cameron and Benjamin over at the Rational Reminder podcast. I highly suggest everyone checks their podcast out. And that's where I first heard of Dr. Johanna Peets. So thank you guys and enjoy. Johanna, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sean. Great to be here. So that last part, of your bio. You are passionate about identifying ways to line up actions with desired outcomes. If you're passionate about doing that, it might suggest that humans, we aren't so good at lining up our desired actions with our outcomes. So why aren't we good at doing that? We are still all trying to figure this out in psychology, right? (laughs) New Year's just passed, right? And most people probably had a lot of New Year's resolutions. And maybe by now, a month later, or a little more than a month, 
many people have already given up on those goals and haven't actually pursued it all the way, right? And just to give another example, in some of the studies that just ask people, are you motivated to save for retirement? Most people agreed that yes, they do want to save for retirement. But in other studies where they asked how many people actually do save for retirement, the percentage was a lot smaller. Like it was a huge discrepancy, right? Just to illustrate, like people are not that great at really doing what they feel they should be doing or what they want to be doing. So there's lots of reasons that you ask, why is that the case? Lots of reasons. Like one of the main reasons I believe is that it is a delayed gratification, right? You're not retired now. So it's very hard to imagine to give up something really pleasant right now, like that drink with a friend or, you know, even necessities for this distant future outcome that might or might not come to pass, right? So it's very hard to deny yourself something now just for, for something in the future. And the same thing is true outside financial domains, like exercise or so, right? Exercising for future benefits, even though you personally don't like exercising right now. I mean, there's some people who love exercise. Those <laughs> are just having uh, benefits in the present and future, but most people kind of have to force themselves to pursue that goal, right? Yeah. So are we fighting against our evolutionary ancestors, I guess, who, who weren't future orientated, who needed to focus on here and now and just to survive the given circumstances? Is that part of the reason why we're so bad at being future orientated? Oh, that's a very interesting. I never thought of it in this uh, context. I would argue that it's actually one of those distinguishing features about humans that distinguishes us from other animals is that we do think about the future. You know, our frontal cortexes, which is usually where temporal cognition is kind of thought to be, uh, planning and things like that, like they're the most developed. And I think humans are excellent at thinking about the future. They're just like not, still not quite good enough. You know, like I think compared evolutionarily, we're getting better and we've already been really good to start with. But I think it's just a lot working against us, like to think like, oh, I'm going to not uh, go on vacation today because maybe in 50 years I'm going to um, want to have another bedroom in my house or something like that yeah. is a very difficult cognition to really make seem relevant to today. So I think there's a lot of external circumstances working against it. But I wouldn't ever say that humans are bad about thinking about the future, like especially in evolu evolutionary context. I think humans are excellent about thinking about the future. It's just that it's a very difficult thought to make relevant to today. We're not quite good enough yet, but we're still pretty good. And I guess that's what allowed us to evolve so well as a human species. I guess with money, though, if we look back at, I mean, how many thousands of years that money was not this idea of saving, could this relatively new introduction of money in retirement, I mean, retirement is relatively new. So perhaps this idea of saving is against the grain. And to your point, we can't really empathize to that future self. What are some re ways that you've seen through your research that we could start to bridge that empathy gap a little bit so that we can see, to some degree, our future selves? Well, I want to highlight not my own research, but Hel Her Hirschfeld's research here. Like That is really one of the most creative and interesting ways, I think, that uh, has been done to really highlight uh, distant future selves' benefits for the current self. And he uh, showed people pictures of themselves and then digitally aged those pictures in front of them so that they could really picture themselves getting older. You know, you can also imagine this in slightly less sophisticated ways where you're just asking people to really think about yourself getting older and what would be a day in the life of a retired you be like. Like you can really kind of make people think about this in a more vivid way than they would usually do. Like because usually if you ask people will you retire at some point? They're like, sure, you know, and they don't really give much thought to it. But if you really force them to do this, for example, with creative methods like uh, Hirschfeld did, or by simply asking them to imagine this in a very um, concrete way, then that makes it just a lot more vivid and important, seem much more important than if you're, if you're not doing that. You're making me think why financial planning softwares don't have an embedded future image of ourselves so that every single time we go and look at these numbers, which really are, are fearful for many people, they look at these numbers on the screen, we should just have like pictures of them. So to get that continuous reinforcement. Yeah. And I mean, uh, banks often do this by showing like retired people, like images of retired people. So you can picture what an old person looks like at the time when you're signing up for a retirement account. We know so it highlights this. Uh, this is what we're talking about here. Like when not retirement tomorrow, but retirement at, at this kind of age. 
you know, you could really make it more self-relevant by showing the participant with age-progressing photographs or videos what they would look like at that time, yeah. Yeah, because I feel like, and I speak from experience here, is that I, I've done those generating images where you, you see yourself at 65 and you're like, oh, wow. And it, it has that feeling of, okay, I want to start making a change. But back to your thing you talked about New Year's, but then life happens and it just gets busy, 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 busy. So I think if there's anyone developing a financial planning software out there to have more exposure to that future self might help keep nudging someone towards that as opposed to do it once in a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's true. I mean, it's always twofold, right? Like you have to set the goal and then you also have to follow through on the goal in a daily context. So if you're saying I have the goal to save for retirement, you kind of have to define for yourself what does that mean, how much per month, and then actually how will I make that possible, mm. right? So in the supermarket, are you going to call to mind your retired self because that's your goal? <laughs> Probably not, right? But you you might call to mind, oh, my budget is only this much for this week, so I can't afford buying this cool item on sale that I really want to have. Like the goal setting should be really understood differently from the goal pursuit. You know, once you have the goal, you still need to pursue it. So the strategies that you might use for to inspire people to set more ambitious goals might be different from the strategies you give them to actually pursue those goals in a daily life. So you distinguish goal setting and goal pursuit. Is what mm-hmm. you? I know you do, you've done a lot of work on motivation and especially in the personal finance area. What, what, do, what do we know about goal setting? What works and does not work? And I say this because, again, we're talking a bit about the New Year's resolution and these goals fade. <laughs> I guess let's start there. What, what is a proper way to set goals? And I know this is a basic question, but how many of us have goals that we just do not achieve? So with goal setting, I would personally say like you, you don't want to be too uh, ambitious because people do tend to just overpredict how much they think they can save or cut off their spending. And actually, we had some very fascinating work with Roger Bueller and I, uh, I've done this 15 years ago now, where we ask a number of people to predict how much, so it's like goal setting, right? It's a prediction more like that, uh, to predict how much they'll spend the next week and say they say on average, maybe 100 and uh, when we followed up, how much did you actually spend? They said, oh, 150, you know, but then you asked them again, how much will you spend the next week? They're like down to 100 again. They're like, oh, last week was different. You know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change. And they would keep doing this. They wouldn't learn from their mistakes. They would keep setting these really ambitious goals and then fall short on them. So they'd constantly have this disappointment in their own predicted achievements. And I don't actually know to say we never looked at this in enough detail to see whether that's actually because it's a good thing to set these really extremely highly ambitious goals because maybe it pulls them further than they would have gone otherwise. Or if it's a negative thing, because you constantly feel like you're failing at this goal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I could imagine both being being true, but it's definitely a phenomenon that people are setting goals that are a bit too ambitious and like they're very optimistic about what they can do and they're setting themselves up a bit for failure. So I would say like, don't have such ambitious goals, like really Look to the past, what you've been able to do in the past, and that should be your goal. That should inform your goal. Maybe a little bit more than that, but not like a whole 50% more, you know? (laughs) So you don't agree with these people who are shoot for the stars and make these big, ambitious, audacious goals. I tend to disagree to some degree as well. But so why why do you think we're, we're, I know we kind of touched on this, but especially around money, what have you learned like you said, we haven't studied if that's good or bad, but what have you learned on how we can set more realistic financial goals or realistic perceptions on how we'll spend our money? If we're still talking about goal setting, then some of the predictors that make people better at predicting and really better able to achieve some would be basing it in the past, right? And this is true beyond finance. Like if you're looking for relationship predictions, time predictions, anything that is like kind of the past predicts the future the best. So If you're uh, really looking to make accurate predictions of things you're going to follow through on, then uh, informing that on your past behavior and your past uh, saving or whatever you've done for your partner in the past, like all those kinds of pieces of information, that is going to uh, make you better at goal setting if your goal is to to achieve that goal, you know, to have an accurate uh, prediction. If your goal, um, like you also mentioned, shooting for the stars, maybe that's more of a helpful goal if you're making really long-term goals, like retirement goals again, right? Like for the next week saying like, I will save a thousand dollars is maybe really not helpful if your income is only 500 a week, you know, (laughs) that's just gonna 
bound to disappoint you. But if you're saying, oh, for my retirement, I'm going to go for a million, you know, I want to have a million and that's a really ambitious goal. Maybe that's more motivating to you than to make a more realistic goal that is smaller. Yeah, and you're making me think of a couple of things that I've I've heard you talk about is this in, internal locus of control. When I say internal locus of control, when you've come up with an intrinsic goal that you've determined important yourself. And I think perhaps this idea of setting these big audacious goals sometimes come from the outside. It's because I should do this. I watch The Secret and I should just dream about having $5 million pour into my house. Can you touch on the difference between having like goals set from the outside versus the inside? And what does that internal locus control do for us? Yeah, that's that's really a great link. It's both the internal locus of control. And sometimes you can also, in some research traditions, it's also called the autonomous motivation, like really feeling you're pursuing this goal because it's personally important to you and you really care about achieving it. You think it's the right thing to do. Like all those kinds of beliefs are going to make it much more likely that you'll achieve it. And that also that you're going to have more fun pursuing the goal. Like it's actually going to feel less effortful and more enjoyable if you're pursuing a goal for these reasons. Then if you're pursuing it for extrinsic reasons, sometimes it's called controlled reasons. Like when you think, oh, my friends and family expect me to do this. Or I think society, I need to do it for my prestige and in society or something like that. Like those goals that you pursue for those reasons feel a lot more effortful. You're less likely to achieve them and you're going to have less fun pursuing them because you you feel you're working for someone else almost, right? Right. It, it makes me think of myself. Are you familiar with the FIRE movement? No. It's an acronym for Financially Independent Retire Early. Okay. So... The origin behind it, I think, is a great concept is people are sick of retire or working until they're 65 and retiring. They want to enjoy their lives now. So the philosophy behind it is really, really good. And people have done some astonishing things. I found myself grasping to elements of it because I was like, yeah, I want more control of my kids right now. Not control, be with my kids more right now, do the fun things I'm doing right now. So I really started subscribing to, to it. And like, it's like trying to save as much as you can, live as frugal as possible. And then I found myself really being like, why am I ruminating over this relatively small purchase? Why am I trying to cut down my phone bill by $5 a month when there's these bigger expenses and so forth? And then what I started to see is that, you know, my own relationship with money needs some work, but this was something that I felt like externally I should do. And it felt like a lot of effort and my wife didn't necessarily like it. And then I started thinking like, wait, what am I running from? And this is all personal. So I just decided to try to create work and a life that I can just enjoy right now. And so this is not a, a critique of the fire, but it's just an example for me where I saw this thing that people are talking so highly important of, and I didn't take the time to look at my values, what I want. And I tried to put it on myself and it was really difficult. This brings me to some of the work I've seen you've done on personality traits and spending and money. Everywhere we look, we can see these podcasts on fighter movements. I have a podcast on money and we can find books on personal finance. But perhaps is this information not too personal, especially when we consider everyone else has a different personality. So what do we know about personality traits and spending money? I totally agree with you that there's probably a number of adaptations you have to put on these prescribed goals. Like like when you're describing fire, I'm like, maybe it would have been useful to you to think like, oh, I want to retire maybe five years earlier than I would have done otherwise. So then I make very small changes in my daily life that allows me to enjoy today, but I don't have to retire at 35, you know? I guess that's my all or <laughs> nothing thinking. Instead of 65. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Real believer in personalizing goals like this, you know? Like, so maybe you want to retire early, but what early means to you personally, it could just be a year, it could be 20 years. It's like, it depends on what, you know, what, what works for you. For personality traits, we do know that there's a number of traits that actually explain variance in financial literacy and uh, financial behavior like savings. And they are like the main personality trait that is linked is usually conscientiousness, which is perhaps not all that surprising. You know, like people who are conscientious tend to think more of the future. So they will also think more about saving and find it easier to plan and stick to plans. Like that is just all aspects of about this trait of conscientiousness. One um, personality trait that is negatively linked with these financial literacy and behavior things is agreeableness, interestingly, you know? <laughs> so it seems like sometimes people just feel themselves compelled uh, to perhaps spend money for others 
and they might get lots of benefits out of that. So I'm not saying it's a bad decision, right? But for their personal financial outcomes, it might be less positive, right? So conscientiousness is definitely the most predictive personality trait. So conscientiousness, maybe I would like to explore more of the definition of that. I mean, on the surface, I know it's being conscious of what I'm doing. And the reason why I I want to dive into this is there's a psychologist named Dr. Brad Klontz. He really has done fantastic work in financial psychology, which integrates psychology and money, similar to what you're doing. And we have a calls every two weeks and they're fascinating if you ever want to join them. He's wonderful. But our last call, he did a literature review on a mindfulness paper that showed people who practice mindfulness actually had worse, not worse, less saving behaviors for the future. And most of us were like, what, really? And he really like did a good job analyzing the paper. And the conclusion of the paper was, or the research was that we're less future oriented. So what is the difference between consciousness and mindfulness? If you, <laughs> I know that's not your research, but from your perspective and, and because it's kind of saying two different things, the consciousness and the mindfulness. So I would argue that mindfulness is more of a state, like you can actually achieve mind, like mindfulness in the moment, right? So you're more or less mindful. You can sit down and actually do a mindfulness exercise where you're focusing on what you're doing right now and you're in the present. Contentiousness really is more of an underlying trait where you're, uh, you tend to be a person who is early to appointments and who follows through on their plans, who tends to make a lot of plans, who is reliable. Like all those aspects is uh, part of this big five trait of conscientiousness. So not consciousness, conscientiousness, that is much harder to manipulate in the moment. So it's very hard to get people to be conscientious just for a moment. Like either have that personality trait or you're, uh, you might be acting conscientious, but if you're construing it as a trait, then it really is across situations. It's just like a, it describes you as a person. Thank you. That makes perfect sense when you describe it, the trait versus a state. And so, yeah, if we're more conscientious of our decisions, if we're, we could potentially even be more conscientious of our future self, then is what I'm hearing? I mean, there's also, uh, if we're talking personality traits, I think one interesting one to mention is also promotion versus prevention orientation. So that's the idea by Tori Higgins at NYU. He distinguishes people who tend to look more towards doing things, and pe- that's promotion orientation, and people who tend to want to prevent bad things from happening. So make good things happen versus prevent bad things from happening. And I think that really maps on to the distinction of people who'd like to prevent unnecessary spending, right? Like there's one type of financial behavior you can do to improve your financial situation or people who promote saving, you know? So you either feel like I want to accumulate saving and you might be even getting a kick out of seeing your savings account increase, you know, and you're just increasing this good thing. Whereas other people are much more... uh, Prevention-oriented people are perhaps much more interested in saying, like, I don't want to have to regret these purchases later. I don't want to have to sit there and be like, I shouldn't have bought it. Like, that was a bad decision. I want to prevent those negative experiences. So I'm not going to spend, which, you know, eventually is also going to lead to a better financial situation, but in maybe a different avenue, you know, in daily life. So you're more thinking about what can I do to save as opposed to what can I do to reduce spending. Why are we not doing more personality tests or not tests, but I mean, at times I feel like I don't want to label people as a certain personality, but getting insight and there are some tools, but I don't think we do this enough at all to really understand the person and their personality through an assessment and then tailor advice towards that along with this graphic that continues to show them older and older. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think tailored advice really would, is crucial. I think in financial planning and financial advice, for example, I'm going to push my own work here. Yes, so please. for example, <laughs> we did these studies where we tried to, with my student Maria Daridenko, these studies where we tried to really teach people strategies to reduce their spending in daily lives. And there is a lot of, lot of things out there, like the think about your future self at retirement, think about how much you will regret this purchase, you know, <laughs> and those things can help people. But we did, we did inform them about this. We made a little video and just said, like, watch this. Here's some ideas about things you can do while shopping. But other people, we just ask, we just explained the idea. There might be strategies you can use to change your cognition in the moment. And that makes you more likely to save. And they just came up with their own strategies. And they were actually more successful in the end. 
than the people who we informed about these strategies. So in part, this might be because, again, like we we pushed it on them. We're like, here, do these things in your life. And they might not have wanted to. They're like, oh, those are stupid strategies we're talking about, you know. But it might have also been just because it's a much better fit. Like you might have found over time in your life, like these are the strategies that fit for me. Like I'm like, personally, I like planning. I like calendars. I like putting everything in. I love writing shopping lists, you know. So for me, that kind of strategy works really well. But my husband does not like to write shopping lists at all, you know. So if I'm telling him, write a shopping list, it'll help. He will be uh, not happy and he might do it, but he will not be using it in the store and it won't be very helpful to him. So I think there are strategies that help people and the fit of these strategies to the person is really important. So tailored advice, I think, is critical. Yeah, that, that's really, really interesting. So just to make sure I'm getting this correct, what you're saying is that on the studies that you did there, when people looked at the past, what they've done well or what they perceived that they've done well, they're more committed to doing that forward and they're more likely to continue doing those versus if a financial planner comes in and says, do this, do this, do this, do this. If we let them explore what has worked well for themselves. Yeah, that's exactly right. So in this study, we instructed people either use these six strategies for the next month or other people, we said, list six strategies that you're already using and you think work pretty well and do those more for the next six month, uh, next month. And then the people in the control group in which they didn't, we didn't tell them anything. So they were just going about their life as usual. And then at the end of the month, we asked, how much did you spend last month? You know, and they were checking their bank account and they were giving us little uh, information there. And we added a lot. We found that they saved on, I think it was $300, around $300. They spent $300 less in the group where they had written down their own strategies than in the group where we gave them strategies or the control group. So it was quite a bit more effective to just use your own strategies rather than just to tell them here, research has found these strategies work, just use them. Not as good in this group, right? Then to just tell them, think about really, and it's still better to think about these strategies yourself because they were doing much better than the control group who didn't think about this, right? Right. So they sat down and they really thought about what are some strategies I'm using? And we reminded them over email a couple of times in the months too, saying like, please think about these strategies again. <laughs> like keep using them consciously, you know? And yeah, that really helped them more so than just telling them what to do. What happened with the group that you told them what to do? Well, they didn't actually do any better than the control group. <laughs> like we had hoped that they would be doing at least better, but maybe... They were, they were just getting reactive perhaps, or maybe the strategies we told them weren't good. Like we, we told them about strategies that had been tested in research and that were established in the lab to be effective, right? But maybe they were just not effective for those participants in their daily lives. It just didn't fit, or maybe they didn't use them. I don't know. don't know what exactly happened there. Yeah, but it didn't help them compared to the control group. That's so interesting. And as an advisor, one of the large hurdles we face is people implementing our advice. And I think at times we don't step back to reflect on the system itself. Maybe they're not implementing it because we're not connecting with them properly. Maybe we're not implementing it because we're paternalizing them by saying, do this. And then I've seen software now come out being like, if you're an advisor who your client isn't filling out the documents or doing this, here, this fintech or this financial technology company is going to help nudge them to do the right thing. But maybe we're just missing the point of having more collaborative conversations. And there's a lot of talk. And uh, actually, I'm releasing an episode today with the, my guest, Sandra Davis. And she is really good in financial coaching. And her belief is that I can't empower anybody. I can have conversations that allow them to find the power within themselves. And you're making me think about, based on this research, just the power of like this coaching aspect of letting people giving them a space to come up with their own ideas because I guess your research even backs that up. <laughs> no, I told, I love that idea. And I do think people are a lot smarter than we give them credit to before. Like, I mean, we, from the outside, it might look like, oh, they're falling short of their goals and so on. But there's, they do a lot to promote these goals in their daily lives too. And we had some really cool strategies that people told us about, you know, like what they're doing in their life. And I was like, oh, that totally wouldn't work for me. But that sounds like a really interesting way to to save, you know. And yeah, I, I think give them power, like ask them what, what they're doing already. Or even if you really think that this is one strategy that they should absolutely be using because you have full trust in the strategy. My advice would be to ask them to think about instances in which they already used that strategy in the past themselves, because maybe they have, you know, or if not, you get more buy-in 
by showing them, oh, you're already doing this a little bit, you know, and just tweak it a little and do it this way that we think works even better. And they might be more likely to want to use it and they might be more likely to find a way that it fits in their lifestyle than if you're just saying, this is a strategy, it's totally new, you've never done it before, you know, <laughs> just like tie it in with, with what they're already doing. Yeah, the, the, your approach there, it seems like when you, you said, to use your words, fits with their strategy, I think helps them create that back to the goal setting, that intrinsic goal versus us, the advisor, just putting that on themselves. Really, really neat. Anything from that study that surprised you? Well, that our strategies didn't work surprised me. <laughs> I was like, why are you not doing more there? I really thought that when we tell them to use these established strategies, they would be doing it like really well. Oh, so that was your hypothesis. Yeah, I yeah, know. And originally we thought that would help. Like we wanted that to help. And then we were like, what? It didn't, it didn't work. So the first study, we actually compared expert strategies we compared media strategies that people that we have found in the media that I mentioned, and we compared people's own personal strategies, right? And we thought all these strategies would be good, but mostly the expert ones, because let's face it, you know, experts know better and they're going to have the best strategies. Totally didn't work. Instead, it was their personal strategies. So then we did a second study where we just, where we're now saying, okay, let's see if this replicates, right? And we're just comparing them expert and the self-generated strategies. And it did replicate. So it was like not just a single effect once, it was like a second month, a separate sample. It happened again, right? So that's when we were really like, now, now we really believe it, you know, like they're really, it seems to be better to self-generate these strategies. And it seems to be about the fit. Yeah, it's super interesting. And it, and it makes sense from this motivation aspect, like personal motivation. And I think, you know, an advisor still is there to help guide them that they're not coming up with totally strategies that can harm them, that we could more or less be guide rails, but not necessarily shoving the information and advice down their throats. Exactly. I think that would be the best of both worlds, right? Because we did also see some participants list strategies like, oh, I use a lot of coupons and such, which is a bit of a double-edged sword because sometimes coupons help, but there's also plenty of research out there showing that it can also lead you to spend more money overall because now you're starting to spend money on things you wouldn't have bought otherwise, right? Just because they're on sale or because you have a coupon for it and then you get a product, but you wouldn't have ever bought it. So in the end, you're actually down some, out some money, right? And there was a really cool study in Japan where they gave 10,000 people coupons to use, you know, and they just wanted to see what happens to their spending. Are they going to save money off this, you know? And they didn't, like, they just bought a lot of things that in the study were classified as luxury items or non-necessities on top of what they were already buying. And then they sometimes had to top up the money of the coupon. So they ended up spending more yeah. <laughs> with the coupons than they would have had otherwise. So it's not, it's the double-edged sword. Like sometimes coupons, I think, can help. If you use them correctly and if you're the personality who really like checks, but it can also hurt you if you have the illusion of, oh, I'm spending money, I'm using coupons, but then you end up with 20 mustard jars and <laughs> yeah. you don't actually like mustard, right? Like those kind of things. But you got it on sale. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think those organizations have beat the consumers to understanding they can exploit our behaviors by making us think things are inexpensive. And just on this idea of coaching and kind of being there on the guardrails, this, this gal that I mentioned, Sandra Davis, she had this quote that I thought was really good. And it was, why knowing better doesn't mean doing better, but you can't do better if you don't know better. So I think just the blend of both is allowing people to explore their own ways of being, but also being there for them. I want to switch gears a little bit and go to another study of yours. And this one was around locus of control and income volatility. As I was going through that research, it made me think of the book Scarcity. The concept of the book is that they look at public health and then money, but sometimes people who are poor are perceived to be making bad decisions. And the book really argues that it's the poverty's effect on the mind that lead us to making bad choices. So living in poverty has too little or it has these psychic costs that decrease the mental bandwidth that we have to make these decisions. So we tend to make bad decisions and continue down spiraling. When I was reading your research, I saw a link in the sense that you talked about income volatility, which you didn't specify if, there, if that's living in poverty or not, but yet there's some unknown there. What have you learned between this idea of, say, it's poverty or income volatility and our internal locus of control? 
so volatility would be defined as like your income just varies a lot. You know, one one month you make a lot of money, the next month you don't. So that applies to people like gig workers or shift workers to some extent. So you might not even get some shifts one month. Like somebody else decides you don't get shifts and boom, your income has changed, right? TD Bank estimated that, you know, like almost 40% of people in Canada have this volatile income where they can't really predict next month's income. And even some people on employment insurance have volatile income because it shifts. Like it's not actually that set. Like it, they take a lot of factors into account. They might give you more or less money months to months. So we were interested in what, uh, how this income volatility affects people's planning and saving decisions. Because if you don't know how much you'll have, it's really hard to plan for the future, right? Like you can't guarantee that you'll have enough next month to, to pay the rent. So you have to perhaps uh, arguably like you should save now to smooth income and, and then be able to pay for it. But that's actually not what we found. We found more correlations between people who experience more swings in their income months to months. Those people made fewer saving decisions. It's almost like they didn't trust the future, right? It's almost like they felt like, oh, I have no control over what happens. I better spend it now while I can, you know? And that's this locus of control that you mentioned. It's like we found income volatility is linked to a lower internal locus of control. So people felt they didn't have control over their income. They didn't have control over what would happen. And that led them to plan less and to budget less because they felt there was nothing they could do, right? Like a bit of like a helplessness it could create the sense of like, oh, there's no point in planning because I can't influence my outcomes anyways. Interestingly, this was the case even when controlling for amount of income. So even like regardless of where they were in terms of how much they earned, if the income switched a lot, they were experiencing a lower locus of control, lower internal locus of control. We even replicated this in a little experimental task in the lab where they came in the lab and they played a little income game where they were paid money, <laughs> like <laughs> theoretical money. Like they got $50 at the end for this, playing this game, but everybody got the same amount. They just didn't know that. But they were playing it. They were either paid out in a very stable way. You know, every task they do, they get a certain amount. And other people, every task they played, they got like variable amounts that were randomly determined. And it wasn't really clear to them why they would get more or less at each point. So they were experiencing this income volatility of like, I don't know what I'm getting and when, you know. And even after half an hour of playing this game, they were already um, less willing to save the $15 we paid them because we told them if you if you wait two weeks, we'll give you $17. <laughs> you know, I mean, we just counted how many people said like, okay, pay me in two weeks instead of now. There were more people, significantly more people who after playing this volatile game, they, they didn't want to wait for us. They're like, no, give me $15 now. And I think it's in part, it creates like a sense of trust and income control if you have stable income. And if you don't have that, if you have this variable payout, then you're like, I'll take what I can get now and I'm not waiting, I'm not investing, investing, right? I mean, it was only $2, but we just wanted to simulate the, the investing process of wait for a higher pay payout later. You know? So yeah, so we could replicate. So I do think that not just how much income you get, but also the way it's paid to you. Like if it's a stable, you can count on the exact amount or if it just changes depending on the shifts you get or depending on the gigs you get or the, the clients you, you score or not, you know, that, that can really influence how you think about money. And on top of the attention that poverty takes, you know, and that also makes it harder to plan for the future. But on top of that, it's also just this locus of control that gets influenced. Right. Okay. And so... As you're explaining, I could see that actually quite a difference between the the from the book scarcity because you you also said it didn't matter how much the income was. Any thoughts or predictions on? I'm asking you about predictions, even though we're talking about we're bad at making predictions. But uh, you're a scientist, so if people have this volatile income, what they can do to maybe help curb the desire to just spend it when I get it. Like we haven't studied this. This is all speculation. But I would argue um, that there's a number of automation tools available and through banks and so on where you can save save the rest or you know save uh, a small amount when you when you have income over a certain amount then automatically save it for a rainy day or something. Like if you do that, then you automatize the smoothing of the income and you don't have to make these decisions yourself. So you're not depending on your personality or perceived locus of control or anything like you set that as a goal it's like every time I make more than this amount I will save it for next month because next month I might make less so, right so you could set up like an automatized uh, income smoothing sort of mm -hmm. uh, income 
situation with your bank. I, I think that would really, and again, I haven't tested that, but I do think it would be easier for people to do than to remind themselves in the moment. It's like, I have extra this month, but don't spend it on these things that I really <laughs> want to spend it on. Like save it in case next month I have less than extra. Yeah, that's true. People could figure out what their, their fixed expenses are, how much they need for entertainment and the other things and just only pay themselves that much. Because I feel like, well, your research shows when that money hits the bank account, the, the reptilian part of the brain is like, let's go shopping. So we've been talking about, we're not so good at predicting our future selves, our, our, our spending habits, and then a lot of things around money and personality. But you also study relationships to some degree, well, not to some degree, you do. And you've done some interesting research. And something that I see in the study of well-being is that relationships are one of the highest predictors to feeling or experience a good life or experience levels of happiness. But money and couples seem to be a huge conversation, we'll say, in the households where we probably don't know how to talk to our our spouses regarding money. What have you learned about cultivating positive relationships while still having to make financial decisions when we're really not even good at making our own financial decisions, but we try to make them for our spouses? I love all the questions about money and relationships and putting the two together. I totally agree. Money and relationships go together. It's an important topic. And actually going back to the strategies, just briefly, it's like some of the strategies that haven't been studied yet, but that people often mentioned were things like giving their partner veto power. You know, like they like every time I want to buy something, I call my partner and ask, like, is it okay? So they will convince me not to buy it. Like, like employing the partner as kind of your, their external conscience. Like, maybe they tell them in advance, I'm going to call you and ask you about those shoes and tell me not to buy that. Uh. <laughs> you know, so it's like a, they were almost yeah providing like emotional support. So they're using the partner as a strategy to reduce their spending. That was really fascinating, which I hadn't thought about before. But people were just doing that spontaneously. The second thing to mention is, yeah, uh, financial conflicts are definitely an important topic in relationships. It's not, interestingly, the most frequent conflict in relationships. So uh, more frequent are things like arguments about chores and parenting decisions. Or like if you just look at a ranking Mm -hmm. of how frequently people argue, they're more than, than money conflicts. But financial conflicts are often the ones that are really hard to resolve. And in these studies, they're like, well, if people fight about money in their newly, when they're newly wed, they're mm-hmm. still fighting about money 10 years later. <laughs> like they're not really resolving it. Yeah. And uh, I, I, yeah. I want to get a, a thought. I often wonder though, because I see the stats of money is not always the top of conflicts, but like say parenting and money, I feel like to your point of unresolved, there could be these unconsciously felt feelings that one spouse has more control. And so the other spouse just feels like there's more control that they are lack of control. And then they see them parenting their kids and they get almost triggered by that control. So I, I think money, this is no research at all, but it infiltrates all those other statistics of fights. But anyway, sorry, it's true. I interrupted you. <laughs> that could really be like, I think that's a really good, good thought. Yeah, there's like maybe this hidden influence of money and in all the other conflicts. Yeah. Or if it's chores too, right? Like if mm-hmm. they have, if there's an informal arrangement of the person who earns less, have more chores and you might get resentful about the chores. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah that's, that's totally possible. So I, I do think that part of the reason why it's so hard to resolve financial conflicts and they have been linked to divorce and relationship resolution. So it is an important and different, like it's a conflict people have to solve. I think that part of the reason why it's so pernicious is because people have a whole culture of attitudes towards money. And these cultures come from their own family and upbringing, and they're not necessarily the same. So there is the really cool scale by um, Srivastana that looks at people's motives to make money. And then he has 10 motives, and they're totally different. It's like some people might have want to have income or make money because it makes them feel safe and secure. You know? And others be like, oh, it's about prestige and power. You know? And yet the third one is about my relations with my family. And there's these totally different views that people have of money and what money means to them personally. And if people from different money cultures, you know, get married or, or are in a relationship, they might really clash. Whereas one person sees spending $10 as a sign of independence and the other one sees it as recklessness, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like this real, um, like there is a there is deep-rooted relationship to money that can really create the conflict. Now, one of the findings that is quite established is that a joint accounts, like couples that have joint accounts, generally do better, like they have better relationship quality. However, 
big, big however, is that obviously no researcher has ever experimentally assigned couples to share their finances, you know? So it might just be that, so that's all correlational. And it might just be that people who are already in good relationships tend to share their money more. And that that's why we see this effect. But uh, that seems to be definitely like a established link between joint finances, generally linked to less conflict about money and more more relationship quality. But who knows if that's actually causal, right? That mm-hmm. could just be correlational. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's certainly a level of trust when you're sharing. And I mean, trust is instrumental to relationships and having that separate maybe diminishes the trust. I don't know, but... Well, it, it might create things where you're starting to really account for who pays for what, right? And yeah. that creates more of a business uh, that calls to mind more business associations or like really keeping track of who invests what. And that's not very communal, right? So the more communal relationships tend to do better. I can't remember what exactly John Gottman talked about relationships, but he said, when you start keeping score, then you know you're in trouble. Yeah, exactly. So certainly we're unconscious of what our spouse's tendencies and background and cultural impacts on our money. And it just creates this tension between each other. And my background is being frugal, like for for certain reasons, not frugal, but more aware of everything we're spending. And I actually wrote a paper on that. And I discovered from my father's side that his ancestors were immigrants from Ukraine. They came here because Alberta promised them farmland. When they got here, the farmland was gone. So they had to cut down trees and create their own farmland. So there's some distrust in the government. Naturally, I think that leads to just spending less. And there's this notion in Alberta, they say Ukrainians are cheap, is what they say here in Alberta. And, and you know, when you look back, you're like, okay, I can see why. Whereas my wife, her family didn't have that same experience. And so when we got together, I thought like, yeah, I said this to her and this was my own blind spot. But I'm like, do you think money grows on trees? Like, really? That's just a saying. And I've learned that that was my own problem. But to your point, money impacts all relationships. And I think whether we know it or not, it's sort of dripping in. Are there things that you've seen in the lab or through your research that we could help bridge this gap between these financial conflicts? We haven't studied it, so I can't uh, talk to data from my lab. However, there is a lot of research supporting the benefit of perspective taking in relationships. So I think what would really help is to ask yourself, like, what is my partner's perspective on these expenses or attitudes towards money? And really think about like, how do they see money? And maybe if we're disagreeing about a specific expense, like what is their reason for wanting this expense? Because I think it's an easy out to say like, oh, they're just, they just think money grows on trees. They just want anything, you know? (laughs) But there's probably something underlying. Maybe To people, it means something like, oh, I self-actualize or this is really who I am as a person. Like this is an identity purchase. Like I really want to be the kind of person who owns this product, right? So it is like actually part of who they feel they are. So there is other reasons for them to buy it other than like, oh, it was just a snap decision impulse purchase, you know, but it's easy. I'm more of the frugal kind myself. So it's easy to just see, think like, oh, they just haven't thought about it. And that's why they're buying it. But they might've thought about it carefully and they made the careful decision to buy it, right? So to take people's perspective is probably very beneficial to really see like, no, they had a reason, you know, Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. to think about what is their reason to want to buy that. It sounds like we need to cultivate a little bit more curiosity to understand and have some empathy towards our our partners. I wanted to get into time perception, but um, I want to leave this open towards what is exciting you right now towards the studies, the possible research that you're doing in regards to either spending habits, relationships, or time perspective? Well, right now, I'm actually most excited about what we just talked about, the uh, financial conflicts in relationships. And okay. I do want to do kind of study that more because I feel it's a bit orphaned. Like I feel relationship researchers often feel like money is the psychological variable. They're like, oh, well, that's not feelings or attitudes. And I'm like, no, it's still relevant. And economists are like, oh, relationships are not that relevant. Yeah. Or studying other things. So I feel... It's kind of lost between the two disciplines. So somebody needs to needs to look into that more. I don't think there's enough, you know, I think there is some research here and there, but not as much as there has to be, because as you say, it's, it's a really common problem in relationships, maybe more common than can show up in surveys because it informs all those other conflicts as well, like shores and such. Yeah, I don't know many other things that we directly or indirectly feel talk about spend, save a day is money. I think, I mean, 
it touches all aspects of our lives and for so many parts we don't know what's happening and then we try to communicate with our spouse and we're like why did you do that or oh but the one thing i do want to mention too uh, to not give the wrong impression when we're studying strategies and saying like oh we want to reduce people spending it is very important to note that there is a limit to how much people can do right especially if they're low on the uh, income scale like there's I don't want to ever blame the victim here and say like, you should have done more and used more strategies. Like there is really often just nothing people can do. If the income isn't there, you can't save it, right? So there is, uh, it really depends on how much disposable income you even have before to, to see the effectiveness of anything, any other decisions in your life. Like there is a limit to what you can do mm-hmm. with these. And people on the lower end just can't do it. Mm-hmm. Like they just need the income. They don't need strategies from us. They right. need income. Yeah. <laughs> And I think that that just speaks to the privilege of having this conversation is that we're in a position that we we are able to where, unfortunately, the systems of finance have excluded so many people. And I think that's a problem that needs to be addressed. My last question is one I ask everybody, but imagine that you're at the end of life on a front porch looking out at somewhere that brings you peace. It doesn't matter where. It could be an ocean. It could be back in Germany. It could be in Ottawa. It could be on a river, lake, ocean, maybe better. But anyhow, somewhere that brings you peace and you decide to write a letter to your children's children about what you learned on how to have a healthy relationship with money. What would be a theme to that letter? Yeah, I think my that's a great question. And I really am picturing it now. So I think the theme of my letter would be be kind to yourself Right. So this is a kind of a theme on this autonomous motivation we talked about that don't take the financial goals that society or other people press on you. Like think about what you really want. And if you want to have retirement funds, you know, do it within reason, like pursue it within reason. But if you decide personally that what money means to you is enjoying the present, maybe that's a better choice in your life. You know, maybe you shouldn't be forced and then later regret to not having lived your youth just to get a big retirement account. Like that's also not great. Right. So just uh, do what works for you. Be kind to yourself. And that includes, of course, the present self, but also the future self. So think of who you are as a person through life and then be kind to that person. So you have something at all stages of life, not just at the end of life or not just at the beginning, but the whole temporal self. Wow, thank you. I feel like kindness is something else we need to inject more into our personal finance conversations. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Where can people find more about your research? I know you have a, a website that, post the work you're doing? Maybe you can point people in that direction. Sure. Yeah. No. So if uh, I have a website that's linked at Carlton University, I think it's called Life Tools, Carlton slash Life Tools.ca. So you can find me there. I also have a blog with a couple of things about uh, finance. It's called Financial Matters with Psychology Today. So you can look at that too. That's it, I guess. I'll post those in the show notes, the links. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for tuning in to another week of the Most Hated F-Word podcast. If you've been enjoying these episodes, please, I ask a favor, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review, it'll make my day. Until next time, have yourself a good one. Take care.